Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and penny dreadfuls. I'm your host, the soon-to-be-known as Comic Stan, and with me as always is my maniacal co-host is Jamie. It's fucking spooky season, man. <laughs> I'm so excited. It is the season of spooks and scares and screams and and it's not just because we're recording again. No, and so we're doing a whole season of spooky stuff for spooky season. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely excited. One of the fascinating things I found when uh, originally suggesting this or us uh, going over it yeah. was the idea that... Um, I said, let's do all these spooky ones for October. And you're like, awesome. I was like, we might need to do one week when we do this other thing. And you're like, yeah, but artistically, we should stick to the 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 idea of spooky season. Now, in my head, I didn't match it as much as like an artistic endeavor and more like when a supermarket just has spooky decorations for a month. Like, well, no, this is this is art that we're creating here, Ryan. This is very important. It's part of the oeuvre. In the sense that everything's art. But, you know, like under that, like in the sense that like a beer advert is art. Ryan, like, it's either this or I start smearing shit on the walls again. And I'm going to be honest with you, the people who live above me much prefer the sound of podcasting than the smell of feces. Write in if you would prefer the sound of <laughs> podcasting or the smell of feces, which, which, and not to be clear, not listening to your favorite podcast, but just people who are near you recording a podcast. Yeah, because that's a very different thing. Infinitely worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like a live viewing to your favorite podcast. Because for every, like, when someone says they're into podcasts, that's for me, it's like, it's even more broad than it being like, I'm into film or TV. When you say I'm into podcasts, you mean I'm into some podcasts. Yes, I have some podcasts <laughs> that I listen to. There is some podcasts that I listen to when I'm doing my laundry. Therefore, I'm into podcasts. No, you're not into podcasts. Yeah, and it's even worse. I feel like we, as a society, we haven't quite got the definition, like genres of podcasts down yet. No. Because we can clear them in like very obvious ways, like uh, a a banter podcast kind of yeah. like this one or your scripted podcast wait, minute, wait wait did you just refer to this as a banter podcast i mean i try and banter get in the sea you banter as well get in the sea you don't admit you banter get but you do banter in the sea. i've seen you banter this is an informative <laughs> podcast only we, we wouldn't have... we wouldn't have any shorts if it wasn't for the banter <laughs> no the see and the, this is a running argument i just think this should be a space for informative commentary and Ryan's like, no, Jamie, you have to try and be entertaining. And I'm like, but I'm not entertaining. I'm an anodyne man who sits alone in his little flat with his cat reading books. And bear in mind, we have been in pubs many a time where you have been entertaining. <laughs> so it's not, don't try and hide behind this like, I don't entertain. That's, like, a, that's a problem that I have, though. Mm. That's not something to be celebrated. Your, your lofty ideals for this being an informative, intelligent podcast, I figure, are well above your standing. Our standing, to be fair. Our, our shared standing. Yeah, they get scuppered every week. The magic is, and if we have any new listeners, the magic really is, is that we combine the banterness of we've our- had a good time tonight but let's not forget we've learned some really exactly. important things <laughs> we've also deconstructed this title this comic book and we've gotten to the real question of why are blue beetles enemies all the same <laughs> as him but different colors <laughs> what is the driving creative oh, force behind that jesus man i have but one life and this is how i choose to spend at least an hour and a half of it every week <laughs> I mean, but also shitting on superhero comics is its own reward, isn't it, sometimes? I mean, dunking on Spider-Man, considering that I would mm. never be able to dunk in a 1v1 with Spider-Man, yeah. 
is quite fun. And that might be a uh, little hint towards a future episode no, in a couple of weeks. spooky only. <laughs> only spooky, it's, it's no a, superhero. It's going to be a spooky one. It's going to be a bit of both. It's going to be a bit of both. It's, it's going to be a very special episode. But, so what are we talking about today, Ryan? Well, some of my no- some people might have noticed that uh, my description of you this week was maniacal, and they've probably seen the episode title, so it relates to that, because we are doing the Maniac of New York. Oh, well done. I just crossed <laughs> over maniacal, because I was like, that's not very nice. <laughs> I mean, maniacal, like, is it, what, manic? I didn't look up the, the meaning. It's inherently negative. Evil, would you say? Is it yeah. evil? Well, maniacal. Yeah. Like, you're a maniac. I don't know if it's close to, like, manic. Like, is maniac and manic, are they related? Like, you Ooh. can't be, like, a quiet maniac. Like, maniac involves a bit of loud noise. But manic and of- is inherently negative as well. I've never heard... Me- never heard anybody be called manic in anything other than the pejorative sense. Yeah, I suppose so. But it's not but it's not full on like evil like nefarious, you Considering know. Considering I'm such a calm and level-headed human who makes such wonderful decisions. I think we've established these descriptions are not all accurate. <laughs> if anything, they, if anything they spur a debate at the beginning of every episode of whether you are or are not or whether you agree to be the said word or well, not. Well, today I'm going to be fucking maniacal just to spite you. Fantastic. It fits in with the theme of the episode because <laughs> we are covering the ma- maniac, maniacal maniac of <laughs> New York, which is a interesting take on a horror trope for a spooky season of podcast episodes yeah it's like my first slasher comic it is and they are few and far in between it is a lesser known genre with the comics i suppose slasher films rely quite heavily on certain movie tropes and certain editing techniques and stuff like that mm. and so i imagine translating them to the page is actually quite the challenge yeah to get across the fear or terror that these type of this genre tends to at least attempt to evoke. Yeah. And I would say, starting off right off the bat, I'd say this does a pretty good job of that. Well, did you find it scary? I found, my specific note was, I found it did a good job of creating tension. So it did a good yeah. job of making you care about characters and then making you fear for their fate. And then giving them a thorough slashing. That's <laughs> part of the slashers. Because <laughs> I didn't find it scary at no. all. You weren't like putting it away like, ah. Well, and, and this is the thing, isn't it? I've often wondered about this in terms of like horror fiction as well. Mm. Is that I feel like horror really became a genre with film. Well, I mean, people were somewhat scared of so this is actually a bit of a good conversation to start off with before yeah, we propagate the title. I think so. I've always wondered, could I be scared by by text, by written text, by book? And, and then I read a collection of Donald Trump's tweets and I realized that that, in fact, was possible. Yeah, but that's scary <laughs> in a wider context kind of thing, isn't it? That's existential dread. Yeah. It's kind of scary like one of the most scariest bits of television or film depending on how you class it was a old bbc um what the news the, no well yes that, <laughs> kind of related there was a thing in the 80s called threads Have yes, you heard of that yes i'm familiar with it so obviously the fear with that and also related somewhat to uh the modern day chernobyl series it was the fear of like this actually happened or this could happen like this is how close it is chernobyl was incredibly well made and very tense exactly and Chern- so I'll I'll never forget. I watched Chernobyl mm. in an empty library that I managed at the start of the pandemic. The library was shut, but I I still needed to be there to like oversee it shutting down at the start of the pandemic. Blah 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 blah. And so I had nothing to do, and I'd read so much 
And so I was like, I just need some TV. And so I went and went into the DVD section because we still had a DVD section for mm. some reason and found a copy of Chernobyl and was just sat watching it as this apocalypse unfolded around <laughs> me. And it was a very surreal experience. It's kind of like at the beginning of the pandemic, you could see ser- common searches on um, streaming sites and stuff. And pandemic and viruses became like really sharp people like well while we're in it we might as well watch the very few pandemic films that there are also cabin fever Mm, yes but so back to your rigid point have you um have you ever been scared by a book or writing at all well and 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 reading this really made me think about that um i don't think i have and that's not to say i've not read any horrors I think the closest I maybe came was Carrie, Mm. which is a Stephen King novel, and it's kind of an existential thriller where Carrie becomes obsessed with the protagonist, and she's terrifying. Isn't Carrie the protagonist? Yeah, sorry, somebody gets obsessed. No, I think Carrie's the person who gets obsessed. I think that's the point. I thought Carrie was about Carrie. She's the girl who with the psychic powers. Not to spoil a text from however many decades it's ago. It's the 1980s. Yeah. Again, well, this is the thing. It's a long time ago that I read it, but I remember Carrie making me feel some things. Right. And then there was this really creepy book by Haruki Murakami about a kid who gets trapped in a library and has to go through a set of trials to get out. Mm. And there were points where I was reading that really late at night, kind of with a desk lamp on my own and had to put that down. Right. So yeah, there have been times that a book has scared me, but not like a straight slasher fic it's always something a bit more existential yeah slasher works in his very kind of niche pulpy kind of well it's jump scare stuff isn't it it can be but like good i've watched uh, so i i'm a, you're a fan of slasher fics, i'm a big aren't you? fan of horror specifically in film and television mm. i've always been fascinated by could a book be scary and i i do at some point need to like pick up whatever whatever the consensus for the scariest book is i need to like sit down and read and have yeah. a good try a lot of Stephen King people recommend. Perry Pet Cemetery is a big one for that. Yeah, Pet Cemetery is a relatively recent one, I think, as well. Well, a recent book because yeah. the, there was a film came out in, like the nineties. Well, there was a film that came out in the, in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, a remake. Yeah. Oh, so it was from the nineties, so it's not a relatively recent one. Yeah, I, I thought think it was a more recent one. The film, the the latest film was in the in this age of remakes and you know second tries and all that. Stephen King's a really interesting one because he was infinitely popular in the nineties. And he publishes just at an astonishing rate. But he's one of those whose popularity has kind of waned in the past sort of 10, 15 years. Like, you don't see as many people reading Stephen King anymore. I think he became more known for his adaptations, uh, adaptations of his work. Well, because there was so much of it. Yeah. And I think he's still known. Like, he's still a name. Like, well, pe- yeah, people I mean, think of authors like Stephen King. Like, Yeah, but he's more one that, you know, I think if you're buying a Stephen King novel, you're probably buying it for your dad on Father's Day. Yeah. As opposed to like, oh my god, I need to read the new Stephen King. You but know? then, but again, that's that's where I've been drawn. It's like maybe I should try one of these. But then that would break my cardinal rule of never reading, reading a book. Books. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to experiment one day with a with a book potentially. Oh, but I do Ryan. like my horror TV and film, and so this was kind of that wheelhouse. And I, there are some slashes that work more on like longer tension and built mm. rather than jump scares because jump scares are relatively. Widely considered to be cheap. Like, they can be done well, but Do they know, are the I've cheapest form. Have you seen the big one? What's the big one? The really famous slasher with the scene in the shower with the. Oh, Psycho. <laughs> yeah, I've not seen Psycho. Okay. It's a good one. It's interesting because, like, you know, you get to a point with some older stuff where it's like, 
it's influenced so much that came after it that and you it don't comes off as a bit cheesy exactly but you then have to kind of take that try and have that objective look of like this started all that genre and all those tropes so it's good it's, it's the way as a guitar collector i feel about the fender stratocaster exactly which and is that it's really boring to look at but then you remember it's only boring because everyone has ripped it off forever mm. it's like how everyone looks at the wheel they're like i mean that was a good invention at the time but we're kind of past that now you but know right are there more wheels or doors <laughs> wheels do you mean windows oh no i <laughs> fucked it up that's an, that to be fair that could be another one wheels or doors i think i've seen wheels or doors yeah write in if you think there's more wheels or doors in in the universe and, Comic glitter at gmail.com. and just remember 18 <laughs> wheelers exist so that can skew your your ideas potentially but no I, so in terms of like but see i was thinking about this a lot as i was reading it and my big question for myself and for you and it's a non-rhetorical question so if you do want to write in it's comicliterate at gmail.com is is this actually a horror or is it an existential thriller i think it's both i i actually i i defined it personally more as a horror a horror the horror genre being used as a satirical yeah it didn't strike me as horror because there was this sad inevitability to harry's killings Hmm. that made it really sad reading and it made it a bit of a slog for me like oh my god this is just so miserable Mm. because you know everybody in this giant city is just beholden to him and it's become normal and it's sort of commonplace that he murders people i know this is probably something you were going to get into later well i i I feel like you you're not confusing but i think you are more experiencing that the negativity from the real life satirical part of it yeah whereas for me it fell down as a horror because I wasn't scared of Harry because I was just waiting for the next time I saw him. Yeah. Whereas, you know, what, what I think one of the things that for me makes a really successful horror is when you don't get as much of a look at what you're supposed to be scared of. Mm. So a really great example of that and probably the most terrifying piece of media I've ever consumed was Silent Hill 2. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing you were scared of was fucking nebulous. Mm. It had no form. You didn't know what you were looking for. You just know that when it went near people, they died. And I remember having to turn that game off a lot as a kid. Yeah. Because I was terrified of it. Whereas here, we know what Harry looks like. We know his modus operandi. We know when Harry's going to appear and he does. And so I don't, I don't, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is like a negative. I'm just saying I'm not 100% sure that they were trying to write a horror. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. It was it was literally what I was going to say anyway was I don't consider this a true horror. I yeah. consider it a satirical um satirical comic that uses the horror genre as a vehicle. Well, it uses the slasher flick specifically. Yeah. yeah. Like it uses the slasher flick as a vehicle to actually say something and I'm not 100% sure I know what it's trying to say to me. I think it says quite a, it's attempting to say quite a bit. And we'll, we'll break that down. We're only looking at the first volume, the first five issues. Yeah. It's an interesting release with this kind of one, because normally, as we know, even limited release seasons, they uh, comics, uh, series, they have volumes, but they just keep going. Like yeah. volume one ends, volume two starts next month. Like it keeps going. This one is very much like they would release a volume and then a month or a year goes by, and then the second volume comes out. So like seasons of TV. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's a little bit different for a lot of comics. You can tell a lot of the difference because there's a subtitle to each volume. So yes. first one's um, Maniac of New York, and I think the subplot unofficially is Death Train, 
which obviously, you know, is relevant. That's fucking telling, isn't it? The next one is Bronx Bronx on Fire or something like that. Uh, let me just double check that. And then the third one is uh, Don't Call It a Comeback, which is like Don't a cool new Don't Call York. It a Comeback? So are these, are these subtitles all based on the titles of the books that the author and the author in situ inevitably writes about all of Harry's little killing sprees? I think they're some relate, yeah, somewhat related. The third one is just about him. Well, it says it's about a comeback of such without to spoil too much. Yeah. But yeah, they're kind of tangentially related. Well, given what I know about Harry and the subtitle of the second one being Bronx on Fire, I imagine they work out how they think they're going to, they think they've stopped him, right? By burning the Bronx down. Well, we'll as I said, we'll get into it in this one. <laughs> Just Let's, burn the entire borough down. Can we, when, when you actually get to the point where you tell me, can you splice my um, prediction back in to see how close I got? I mean, I can tell you afterwards how close you are. I have read the second volume, but, okay. but we're only covering the first day because I think the first one, it does it. it encapsulate everything you need to know i mean let's be honest here the first volume was all i had time to read (laughs) yeah that's fair (laughs) but there's but i think there's it's quite a rich first volume that there's a lot yeah no there's yeah i mean there's there's i think so it's hard to know where to start with this one so i'm gonna start with how about we start and you tell us what the general story of the first volume is okay so i'm a person i've picked up maniac of new york and i'm like hmm, what's this about a government official has been drafted into work in the Maniac. Was she drafted or was she, did she volunteer? She volunteered right. to work. Right, you don't get to cut in, <laughs> yeah? You're making me do this. At least let me get on with it. It's like a teacher live marking. Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> she volunteers to head up the Maniac Task Force mm. and finds herself battling between... The general sort of, Jesus Christ, brain fart. I'm feeling deeply inarticulate today. Do you want to start again? No, 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 we can, we can just let, the, let it roll. You fair know? enough, fair enough. Um, she finds herself caught between public opinion and the general lack of concern by higher command. Mm. Um, she finds herself working with an unlikely partner in a cop who has been segregated away from the rest of the force on account of being a snitch mm. and she finds herself on a one room crusade to try and get rid of the maniac okay i almost say that was good but i still don't really know as a person who's just picked up who's the maniac or what what is the maniac, the maniac aspect the maniac the- <laughs> is a masked mass murderer think scream but in a hockey mask also, something that bothers me is they say he has an axe, but he does not have an axe. Yeah, that that is weird. I don't know why. I don't know why they put it like that. Maybe they maybe it was an artistic change after the dialogue was already written or something. But also, there's a quiet implication that he's super. Yes, he's enhanced, isn't he? Well, he's he's not human, put it that way. Because he he so he doesn't articulate himself like a human. And mm. then they have because my first thinking right was that. You couldn't have a mass murderer who stabbed people in the street in America because he'd just be riddled with bullets the first time he tried it. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because like, there's just so many. I mean, you've been you've been to New York. I've been to New York. There's four cops on every street corner, all of them with a pistol. Yeah, like he would just be full of bullets. But of course, he's enhanced and he's super. Well, when you said like what he's like, or comparing him to, would you say the Scream guy? Scream, yeah. I I think most people would go more Jason Voorhees from Friday the Thirteenth because of the hockey yeah, mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he specifically the point the the point that it goes from slasher to horror 
I think there's a there's a very thin, almost almost non-existent line where the difference is slasher is a person killing other people, and then horror becomes the slasher is inhuman and cannot be killed by conventional means. Yeah. And that's what you've got here. And you're you're exactly right. If a person tried to attempt this, they'd be shot after like three killings. Especially because he first strikes in uh, Times Square on yeah, New Year's Eve. Like... <laughs> which the whole point is like, it's meant to be the most populated area you could possibly do something like that. Um, but I yeah. mean, if you were going to go ape shit with an axe and that you were like a murderous nutter, it would be one of the places that you'd earmark for, isn't it? Yeah. And especially if you weren't concerned about surviving afterwards. Or if survival wasn't a concern for you because you knew you couldn't be killed by conventional means. Yeah. Um, I'd say before we get into as well, the writer, uh, Elliot Callan, uh, or yeah. Kalen, uh, from The Daily Show, uh, as well as uh, Spider-Man and X-Men, naturally. But The Daily Show is like the interesting credit there. I think that, yeah. that relates to like the political I'm satire. I'm super not familiar with The Daily Show. It's just like, it, it's something that really only exists in America, it seems well, yeah. like. It's... it's it's a satirical interview style show. So the Daily Show specifically is more newsish, like talking about the news, as opposed right. to your typical late night shows, which are like celebrity interview. Yeah. So Daily Show is a lot more political. John Stewart's probably the most famous guy from there. John who Stewart. He's again more American, like not. I mean, he is American, but he's not as well known in the UK. But it's because he's so ingrained into American politics. So that's probably why. So if we've had this conversation that I just don't follow the news, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. I have more important things to worry about. But I think objectively, it's interesting that, as I said, a political no, 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 yeah. comedy writer writing a comic, and it kind of shows. And the art uh, artist Andrea Mutti or Mutti, uh, mm. who why is that a name I recognise? Well, it's. I mean, she's done other comics. As far as we know, he he or she, I'm never sure. And Andrea, um, well, it depends on where they're from, doesn't it? Yeah, um, but they, uh, I straight off the bat, and always a good place for us always to start off with is the art. I think the art really suits the storytelling here. Yeah, because it looks great. Especially, it's it's that kind of watercolor esque style, yeah. which just gives its own kind of vibe. But also, very importantly, it uses the very muted colours throughout the entire thing, which just gives it that kind of sense of gloom and dread all the way through. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it does the same thing very effectively that um, House on the Lake does. It really put me in mind of the art there. Mm. Uh, kind of reminded me of, of some of the art in um, Human Target. Mm, yeah, definitely. Again, it's that, yeah, it's that softer, more sepia-toned thing. But I think these were even bleaker colors oh, then. definitely more muted yeah. like a really really muted color palette a lot of beige and grays and the like other, the thing urban that it, colors the thing that it didn't have that often this type of art i've noticed has is a sketchiness to the lines like the line work is really crisp here so i felt the line work i think was a bit faint and that well, it was faint but it was crisp yes and the faintness kind of made me feel it almost gave it like a bit of a dreamlike uh feeling and I mean, then it made it feel softer yeah and then when the horror starts um for lack of a better term then it it then feel it drifts from like dream to nightmare like it felt yes. that way and especially with the background color changes like when the horror really ramps up the entire background is like maroon or red or orange and you know it always like sh shifts the emotion with the art and i think it's interesting that you say dream and nightmare because cinema has really trained us to associate anything in muted or softer tones as being a dream or a flashback. Yep, yep. And so, yeah, the whole thing does have this kind of automatic association, doesn't it? Mm. With something a little bit dreamlike. Um, 
Yeah, I found the art really enjoyable. I mean, again, I don't because it was so muted and drab. I didn't. I don't know that I found it enjoyable in the way that I sometimes do with a comic where there was no full page. There was no big full page spreads. There was a couple of large panels. They weren't quite full page. There were a couple of larger panels, but there weren't any. You know, the 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 big full page spreads that the big two will use mm. to really punch stuff in. Um, Brian K. Vaughan's work is really, really. I always think. Mm. I always think of him when I think of that. And uh, Eight Billion Genies did some great double yeah. double page spreads. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas there was none of that here. So there was none of those big panels big full page panels played off for impact mm. and so i actually just didn't remember coming away from it at the end of being like oh the art was cool but i didn't really notice it yeah um but it was it was you know i mean to steal a term that we use when we make music it was serving the song right it was really serving the comic yeah it gave me a feel for what i was reading so with the colors as well it made the red pop out in very contrastly this even is though, what i was about to yeah, say even though the red color itself is still itself quite muted so it's not like bright or contrasting, but compared to the gray and beige and everything you're used to, the red really contrasts against that. Red was also the only big primary color they used. Yes, yeah. So every, every everything else was very muted. So even though it wasn't the most like pure toned, it wasn't like the most cool toned red you've ever seen. It was quite a warm toned red yeah. that they used for the blood, but it was the only time you saw large swathes of a primary color mm. and so it really did punch through and then counterbalanced over the fact that when they show you dead bodies and they show you a lot of dead bodies mm. they tend to show you them in soft focus and it really draws attention to the fact that there is blood they are dead this is very much i think the art is very much like a the the bass and drums of a song that you don't quite notice until they're removed and then yeah. you go, oh, this song's shit without them. Yeah, but, but they, as you say, they serve the purpose. Yeah, they're serving the song. Um, but no, again, I mean, I think one of the things that I really want to do with the podcast is kind of lean more into talking about the art because mm. it's, for me, often the most interesting thing that's happening on the page because it's most of what's happening on the page. Yeah, and it's half. Um, it's like half the medium if you're writing an art. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what? Because the panel layout wasn't saying much to me. Like there, there was a lot of there was some nice moments where they had a top third, a bottom third, and then the middle third broken up into a few panels, mm. and that scanned quite nicely. I mean, it all scanned well. This is the thing. Like yeah. none, it was never. A, it was I never found myself having to look back at a page to work out what was going on. I followed every conversation. Like it was well laid out, wasn't it? Yeah, I feel like the panel layout I could best describe as intentionally basic. Yeah, I think it it wasn't the it wasn't trying to draw attention away from the story, but yeah. with because we've read some comics where one page would be great story and another page the story kind of takes a backseat and then you've got this like intricate panel layout like whoa we're going over here and oh, this is crazy whoa they've combined the foreground and the background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this was very much a here's the next panel, here's the next part of the story. Yeah, 100%. And, and I appreciate that. Again, I, I think this was very much intentionally a let the story take the driving, uh, the the take the driver's seat and this kind of mellowed in the background. And the story, so I think there's a, th there's a distinction that we haven't really drawn that much on the podcast, which is the distinction between plot and story. Mm. I feel like this had a lot of plot, but for me, the story was a bit meh. It depends what you mean by story as opposed to plot, because I guess like the to define them for going forward. So the plot I always think of as as I hope you'd agree is just is then this happens, then this happens, yeah. this happens. Story is like what is the character motivation, the arcs, yeah. the things like that. 
And I think with this, because, again, saying, touching on the whole satirical aspect of it, I think the, the, the plot is in service of the satire and not the story. Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose. Because it takes a lot of time to show this wider stuff. Like, there's a lot of panels that are exclusively dedicated to being like, this is kind of like this real world thing. Like, yes. I've made a lot of notes of just lines that encompass that entirely. And the first one off the bat is the news story talking about the first attack. Yeah. And they go, um, all of us must live as if this could happen to us at any, any of us anywhere at any time. Yeah. So immediately feeds into that fear of um, domestic terror kind of thing. And Oh, that, I mean, given that this was set in New York, mm. that's absolutely the vibe i got exactly is that this is a like this could only be a post 9 11 story right yeah and my point is it's it's dedicating panels to those kind of satirical points yeah rather than the story i mean the heaviest moment of satire for me is right at the end when the mayor is rallying the troops after that big attack on the death train Mm. he says we will have a fully automated train. Yeah. <laughs> and his primary concern is his pet project, which is automating the New York City Metro for no good reason. Like mm. nobody wants it other than him. And he's just forcing this stuff through. See, for me, it was the panels just before the time jump. So we start off 2016, yeah. initial attack, and then it jumps to 2020. Yeah. And just before that time jump, you have uh, the New York mayor as well as the senator and the actual, the entire U.S. Senate, all condemning it and making their big speeches and saying, we will not allow this to happen again in a roundabout way. And then cut to four years later, and and here to the local Harry uh, um, prediction, weather report, essentially. Well, and they roll it in with the weather report. So it's weather, Metro News... And Harry Harry attacks, yeah. Yeah, like they are just the three. It's, yeah, I mean, that that was galling, wasn't it? Because it really speaks to the human capacity to live with any discomfort, providing it's there for that long enough. Yeah, yeah. You get, you just get used to things on a long enough scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why this this can be a metaphor for so many different things. Oh, 100%. It's very metaphorically resonant. Mm. But my point was with regards to the story is it's, dedicating panels to those parts yeah. that have really nothing to do with the main story but they they are taking a lot bigger focus on the wider implication and the and the satire which is what i feel like i should put a penny in the jar every time i say satire because it's yeah. going to be a lot in this episode which is what moves it away from being a horror and kind of edges it towards something a bit more existential exactly um because we get those snippets of the wider world and we're really looking at this through the lens of the wider world to give you an idea of how how spot on the satire is, one of the senators... <laughs> I'm not 100% sure that it is satire. <laughs> I think, well, at this point, my argue it, one of the, the senator, the New York senator, who they basically are saying like, and then he condemned the attacks and made yeah. sure they never happened again. They literally name him Senator McCafferty. And, mm. and they are not the New York senator, but a senator. And they say something about he talks about like, oh, no, that's it. So there's in their later attacks, they're like, oh, it's 2020 and Harry's killed four people at, like yeah. randomly. And because there are four women out late at night, it's the Kentuckian senator who's like, Senator McCafferty, who's like, maybe they shouldn't have been out by themselves at that time. Yeah, so, he questions them, doesn't he? Exactly. And they say like, oh, that Kentucky charm didn't, didn't go very far in that quote. That is literally Senator McConnell, the real yes. life Kentucky senator. Yeah. So that's 
how close this satire yeah, that's is. That's how nailed on they got it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And again, that's a very real argument that is used by people to um victim blame people who've been sexually assaulted. Like that is just a thing that fucking happens. Yeah, and this is what I mean by I think the satire is not quite focused enough to be one on one particular message. No, you're right. I mean it is it's just a scathing indictment in the way that America's governed, isn't it? Yeah, and to an extent, modern society, because yeah. if you're a Western society, you are somewhat modeled after America. Like, that is just well, un- undeniable truth. God, I don't like to think of it that way, but that's, yeah, maybe. That's part of that existential horror. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that meme, you know, the astronauts. It's like, wait a minute, it's all America? Always has been. The United States of England. i tell you one thing I do, like, moving away from the whole satire thing, I think this used tropes really well so we've said before about some tiles where they come across maybe a bit i don't say i don't want to go so far as a hacky but like very very trope ridden a bit trope a bit tropey yeah but i I feel like this one used them in a good way which ones so out of interest obviously there's the horror ones like those are pretty bold but like you kind of made a point earlier it's also got that odd couple detective yeah i suppose even though one of them's technically a politician and is in charge of like a task well, she's, force she's more like a civil servant isn't she but also she like she's like gets guns like let's go shoot the yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah but so they do very near the start they do the odd couple trope of seeing them both getting ready in the morning and showing yeah. how different they are so one uh the character green is riding her exercise bike first thing and then she's like ready for work the other one's like waking up late uh, waking up late and drinking and smoking a cigarette exactly so it shows it uses that trope and we've said before, like, if you use a trope to cover some ground quicker to then get to what you really want to do, I think that's a good use of the trope. Well, that's what they're for at their core, isn't it? Yeah. And, well, I think sometimes people use them as just laziness. It's, you, we've seen some, like, lazy stuff. It's like, it's, they're just doing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. It's been done a hundred times before and they're not doing anything new. Yeah. Texts like these, I'm a bit more give a benefit of the doubt. I'm like, they are trying to get to something else quicker. So they use tropes to be like, here's a odd couple they're being partnered and it's like lethal weapon now let's get to what we really need to get to so i I credit it with using tropes well that might be that that might be a bit more of a subjective opinion but i don't know i can see it yeah i mean and it is quite tropey isn't it it's quite tropey it's quite pulpy um i'm trying to think if there's anything else at play here i mean there's definitely the the sort of the trope of the cop fallen from grace yeah yeah i think it's interesting that the thing that she has done to get herself so openly reviled by her colleagues is snitch and again that ties into the satire again of modern policing so for reference her her former partner shot somebody and she gave testimony that ended up in him going to prison and so the rest of the police force no longer trust her and have stuck her on harry duty which again like harry is from what we can see the biggest existential threat to the people of New York at the moment is Harry. Mm. And the person they've put on the job is somebody that none of them want to work with. And, and, and I think it really speaks to the apathy that we're capable of as a species. So when Green gets given her office, it's a single office and the task force has gradually over those four years been reduced to one person. Mm. And it's like the apathy that human beings can sometimes adopt when they're dealing with an ongoing situation yeah as opposed to mounting a response to something new so when this was new and it first started happening they built a task force and they gave like nice offices and they did all this stuff and they put a load of funding towards it and then four years later it's just one lonely civil servant who normally they have to like rope into it Mm. 
who's just stuck fighting this immovable object or this unstoppable force. Yeah. I think it's definitely, it's the the helplessness that leads to the apathy. It yeah. becomes like, and another thing this kind of relates to in a further way is like global warming and, you know, climate change, because it's just a thing that's happening and it sucks, but they, they a lot of people feel like, well, it's, you know, we've tried and we can't really do much and now we're just leaving it. And now you get to a point where people are looking at the benefits of it. For the prime example being that the detective, um, whose name I will bring up. Uh, Pitterbone. Pitterbone, yeah. She, uh, she's at a crime scene and they're like, oh, look, another Harry killing, one for the, one to add to the books. And she's like, well, Harry doesn't really use a gun at point blank. So yeah. I'm, I don't think it was him. And they're like, oh, come on, just take off our hands. Yeah, so already 100%. you've got police being like, let's just chuck it in the Harry pile because the, it's there and we can use it. And, and that's so, not going to yeah, change. It's given, the, it's given the New York police a reason not to investigate homies anymore. And it was a great little economic use of storytelling because they you they show that and they show her relationship to the rest of the police as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's quite I think it's quite economic storytelling. They they fit a lot in and again using the tropes to get a lot in in such a small time. Yes. Yeah, no. I mean, I don't dislike it. It did leave me I'm, I'll be honest, it left me feeling a bit flat. That's fair. I mean, I I enjoyed the uses of the different genres. And I like, and again, I'm a horror fan. So I just like a, yeah. a fresh kind of take on this horror thing and its use. Like, I just enjoyed it for that especially as well. Yeah, no, and I get that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to investigate why I think it left me feeling a little bit flat. Do you know I, what I mean? It might be because it, this doesn't, even though it's a volume in itself, it's not an ending. It's just, it felt like a first volume. That's an interesting point. I mean, it, because the actual, like, it does come to a point of climax, doesn't it? Like, she yeah. burns him, we think he's gone, we see him kill again, we see him kill that homeless guy. Yeah. Like, it, it, does, it does have this kind of point of climax where we're like, no, something big has happened, something notable has happened, um, a big Harry event has happened. Like, it feels like he kills in dribs and drabs, and then there's this, these big mass killings that he does. Hmm. Um, and so we kind of get, we see one of those, but it just, it just left me feeling flat. I don't know if it has to do with the general kind of writing because it, it was perfectly well, like it was perfectly well written. It was fine. Mm. Um, I don't know that I particularly enjoyed any of the character interactions. I like the, the relationship between Green and Pettibone. Like I, 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 I don't even really feel like I had a sense of it. I feel like they, there was a lot of little, the dreaded word, banter between them. <laughs> but it, 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 it was that kind of like <laughs> them ribbing each other and that kind of building a sense of camaraderie. And them also going through this traumatic thing together as well. Like there's little parts that made it a bit more interesting for me. Like, for example, so they're on the train. They managed to get on the train. They're trying to save whoever might still be alive. Because one of the good horror aspects is they the setting is... Essentially, it's people on a train, stuck on a train with a unstoppable killer. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that, and I think the comic did a good job of creating that sense of horror through that one character. And to be clear, they are stuck on the train because the mayor has made a decision that they're going to seal the doors and keep the train running and not let them off. Yeah, specifically, let's trap the serial killer regardless of who he kills on the train yeah which is which is you know i mean it feeds into that kind of malaise that i felt reading it where i was like this yeah. is just really sad but again even that whole passage because that 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 ran over two issues didn't it that ran over issues three and four yeah and what was good with one of those the issue where as soon as it starts it starts with a a like 
big spread of all the victims and it gives you their so, names and what they were doing i liked that mm. i did like that and again i liked some of the little storytelling things it did but we were talking about the relationship with green and pettibone and i just don't really feel like there was anything that interesting there there was no, I, I never really got a sense of them as people um and that was kind of the core relationship that this whole text was based around wasn't it yeah that was like the main human relationship. And, you know, we see a little bit of Peta, of, of Green's motivation in her ex-boyfriend, who was like a, a very early, almost unrecorded victim. Yeah. Um, and we see a little, we see Pettibone's backstory. And again, you know, they're both like very tropey, mm. like dead ex-boyfriend, downtrodden cop who's gotten in trouble for doing the right thing, you know, like not liked on the force. And they're just, they're very tropey backstories and they were handled relatively well. I just didn't really get a sense of that relationship. And I think it kind of spoiled me enjoying it as much, you I know? I think it was little bits for me that made me like a bit more like, I said, when they're on the train and they're both like going down the carriages with the guns and there's yeah. bodies everywhere. And Green is, I, somehow Pettibone's just like, here, have a drink of this flask, it'll help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as soon as they then first interact with Harry she green tries to shoot her and almost hits one of the survivors yeah so immediately Pettibone's like fuck's sake shouldn't give you that flask kind of thing and i felt like that was a little bit of like a that wouldn't that level of thinking but wouldn't green, normally happen in this kind of but green text. didn't even drink from the flask and Pettibone saw that she didn't i thought she did and the whole point no, was that she no gave she it says to her. she gave it to her and she said oh years ago i would have drained this but this is for afterwards yeah 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 you're right and yeah. then she spits it at the maniac doesn't yes, she because yeah. she knows he's afraid of fire because that's the whole thing that's come out yeah but, i misinterpreted that then <laughs> well no no because pettibone does say that mm. and that's the point it's like it's almost like the writer forgot halfway through that he'd had green not drink from the flask or he just kind of wanted pettibone to say that but they also wanted green to not drink from the flask and they had their cake and ate it kind yeah. of thing like again it just the 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 whole thing with their relationship was supposed to be like the central human element that we were meant to buy into and i just didn't really buy it um I'm, and that's not to say the comic book was bad it just mm. didn't land for me i didn't particularly like either of their dialogue i thought the dialogue was okay in the sense that it, it fit the the well, the trope and the, the 100%, genre it fitted the genre yeah but that's kind of to say it wasn't very good <laughs> like fair. bad dialogue is a trope of horror horror Fiction, isn't i it? wouldn't go so far personally i wouldn't go so far as to say bad but i, I know what you mean that it wasn't is interesting like good dialogue obviously makes you interested invested in the characters yeah it didn't quite draw me out like i class bad dialogue as something that takes me out of the text yeah yeah, yeah 100%. And, and at least for this it didn't take me out but it was because it was fulfilling again the expected tropes of the genres and again the uh, you know my whole thing here is that the cut and thrust of my argument isn't right. that it's bad mm. it's that it left me feeling flat yeah, that's and I fair. think we've identified that is that the the dialogue was perfectly serviceable. It just wasn't interesting. Yeah, I think what I was getting out of this whole thing is I was appreciating and enjoying the the mix of the the genres with the satire. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think you were looking at it from a more conventional, like what is this story trying to you know get me to feel kind of thing. Yeah, hundred. I mean, maybe. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's it's, it's I, about. A, that is no. kind of a trope of horror as well. Like there are horrors that are elevated because they're considered well-written and have, you know, very four-dimensional characters that are very empathetic. But a lot of horror, and this kind of the slasher horror, going back to the beginning, is one kind of good example of this is the flashback to the first killings is very much a on-the-nose nod to Friday the 13th. They were 
camp right. counselors at a campground. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's Friday the 13th, like the first four before they start getting weird with the franchise. I mean, that's clash, classic slasher stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, started in, by that. You're in films. a remote place, cabin mm. in the woods. That's very much on the nose for yeah. that genre, isn't it? But what the thing about those films is those characters are not empathetic. Like the whole point of it, like the, the trope of horror is that they are teens who are having sex and doing drugs and all this and they're almost punished by this force oh so you, but then you but then it always leads to like the final girl which is normally a girl sometimes it's a guy but it's the final character who's normally a bit more virtuous and you 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 feel for one character like i hope right. they survive and then it becomes 50 50 where they and that's where the tension ramps up so it uses these more disposable characters the bad ones right. quote unquote be like look how look he's just bloody killing people like he's unstoppable and then you have the one empathetic character or one or two depending on the the horror and then those are the ones you're like rooting to survive i absolutely forgot to view those horrors those old horrors through the lens of like 1980s american morality mm. uh, because again their their sense of morality is vastly different to mine yeah yeah um you know the, the the popular and general sense of morality in america in the 1980s is very different to my experience of things what and that, and that and that does make a certain level of sense now that i think back to those old slasher films it's always a bunch of teenagers having a good time whereas when i when whereas when i saw them as a teenager doing all the things that i was doing as a teenager i was like why are you killing these like you know perfectly they seem nice yeah they they're seem... just having sex and doing drugs like that's what i do <laughs> yeah like that's a perfectly acceptable way to spend a friday night like why are you do you know why are you doing this I think one point that you made to me, which was kind of the, the reverse of what's just happened, is you highlighted that for me for superheroes, where you said, oh, yeah, because superheroes are reflective of the of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror is exactly that as well. Yeah, so, no, nothing exists in a vacuum. Everything yeah. exists in context. And during that time, those original slashes came up uh, during that more Puritan, the uh, the religious right of the 80s. Yeah. And it was, it was appealing to that kind of you know, feeling. D&D and metal music was akin to death devil worship and stuff exactly a weird fucking place man but then you look at where we're at now and i know this is a weird one to use an example but like stranger things those characters play D and they are empathetic for it because they're yes. the nerds who are isolated from everyone else and playing dungeons and dragons so. yeah but yeah so those tropes for me i think that was what i was getting more than the the specific character and that makes sense and i suppose maybe i'm missing the point with it but it's one of the th it's one of the th the aspects of it that just left me feeling a bit flat. The thing that really didn't leave me feeling flat was the mayor and everything he got up to. Like the idea of that level of you know lack of consideration for his populace mm. from a politician, it just rang so true to me. And like, one one could say that they the mayor was the real. A monster of the book well yeah i mean kind of a frankenstein's monster kind of situation yeah yeah absolutely um it depends on whether you're reading the 1837 or the 1817 folio if i'm being completely honest with you but that's fine um <laughs> obviously the readers know what you're on about obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah well if they've done english degrees they probably do um <laughs> so the one person who saw the literature part of the of the name of the podcast who went oh literature and they went this is a really literature though is this it this is just a guy with an english degree swearing there's one guy talking about literature but the other one the other one keeps talking about uh, cosmic treadmills and, <laughs> and uh, pennies in bat caves if you don't know about the cosmic treadmill go to the flash episode it's a great time or the shorts or the shorts it gets yeah, mentioned no, quite yeah, a bit yeah, in yeah. those as well yeah go go to the shorts look at one that has flash or anti-flash on it 
Reverse Flash. <laughs> Reverse Flash, for fuck's sake. Um, yeah, no, and, and, and I suppose you're right. I don't, like, again, yeah, so the stuff with the mayor, I found really interesting. Mm. His whole presence, I found really interesting. And I think the thing that I found so interesting in it is that general sense that Harry becomes an inevitability. And, you know, we were talking about, you were talking about um, everything they were doing in the story to set the world up. Yeah. And I think the world creation, the world building here was really good. Mm. Like, I really enjoyed the world building. Some could say the world building was the real horror because it's, yeah. the, it's the rest of the world's apathy to what's happening. That's allowing it to continue to happen, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think there's something to be said for world building that's done on such a short scale. Because, you know, I mean, we talk about, when we talk about really great um, pieces of world building, we talk about Pratchett and George R. R. Martin and obviously Tolkien, Tolkien yeah. yeah. And Mervyn Peake, who wrote the Gormenghar series, or like Asimov in his sci-fi. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Or, yeah, to a certain <laughs> degree, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. But what we're talking about is world building that happens on a grander scale with thousands of pages mm. to introduce lore and backstory and other characters that enrich in it. Whereas here we had five issues of a comic book and they built a really, really fun, not fun, a really bleak, immersive, alternate New York. Mm. And I think that is actually quite interesting. Objectively, uh, like that is interesting. And that also comes back to our saying about using the tropes. It also uses polit- real world political tropes. Yeah. Like prime example, one after the first killings in 2016, there's someone who's wearing a, a pin and they're like, oh, it's to raise awareness oh, for the victims of the Times Square. Ribbon. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's such like a, you know, thoughts and prayers and all that. Like the absolute just not worth anything bollocks. It's the black screen on Instagram. It's token. It's, hey, this bad shit's going on right now, but look at me. I'm also sad about it. Like right. that is it. That's it's the point of that. Token gestures in the face of real life suffering. Yes. The... Oh god, it's just the it's it's one of the symptoms of mm. the disease, as far as I'm concerned. Someone who put it well for me, and I'm not I'm not fully on like. There's a comedian in America called Anthony Jeselnik, and he's yeah. he's known one for being like a really dark uh, comedian, yeah, yeah, yeah. but also what he'll do is he will tweet jokes about tragedies on the day of the tragedy. Oh, and his argument <laughs> does he do that? Yeah, he does it, and no one like people like take offense. But he's like, this is literally like I'm a comedian. This is what I do. Like, and he's want to get in there first. Yeah, and his ultimate argument is, he says, and again, I'm not saying this is okay. I'm not condoning what he does. Yes, but I'm saying the argument is worth looking into. And his argument is, he says, people are like, oh, what if you know a victim of that tragedy sees your joke and sees you, you know, talking about it? And he's like, if you've just been through a tragedy, are you checking Twitter the same day? Well, that's an interesting point. And he's like, victims have got victim shit to do on the day of. Like, they're not like the people. And he says, like, everyone else who's doing the thoughts and prayers is like, that's more of a hollow gesture than him actively making a joke about it. Him actively engaging with the tragedy that's occurred. I mean, and his, and his, his telling jokes about it can only really exist in a world where we are quite apathetic to tragedies. Like, that that's part of it as well and this is the thing isn't it like social media is as far as i'm conform concerned the lowest form of entertainment yeah it holds you in a point of stasis you know it's, you know it's little it's, bits of endorphin like a little hit of endorphin with every scroll and new post yeah absolutely and so 
the idea that I mean, I've long I've long wondered why people take what happens on social media so seriously. Mm. And so yeah, I mean, he's a fucking comedian. He has this instant medium where he can make his joke. Why not make your joke? And again, I suppose he's not asking anybody to laugh at it and he's not asking for any friends from it. He's doing what he does. And and yeah, and I think yeah, people put way too much weight on what happens mm. on social media these days. And interestingly, in the second volume, I'm surprised they did actually don't do it in this first one. But in the second volume, the the point of that is Harry, basically the attack happens at a school. Mm. And in it, you have one part where all these kids can see Harry trying to get to them through a door and they're all filming him. And then wow. Green and Pearbone realize where he is, where he's attacking because of the social media posts. Wow. And again, it, it just it keeps referencing like how modern day how we react to tragedies in the modern day, yeah? Well it is. I mean it's everybody's first instinct when they see either something interesting or terrible happen mm. is to pull their phone out and start recording it. Yeah. I think one area that's worth a lot of um examination as well is there's quite a bit of one of the issues dedicated to uh the detective, the green and Pettibone talking to the guy who wrote the book about it and it takes a bit there and there's a lot of yes. like little bits there which i thought quite interesting the biggest one being the fact that there's a safe space within new york yeah and right like right in the upper east side near greenwich village as well like the yeah. posh bit of new york and i i love little bits like this and the end the very end which we'll get to as well yeah i love little bits like that because for the horror i like law horror so like it's, you know, like antithetical to horror when um, you've got a horror creature or monster and yeah. then you see it and it makes it less scary because yeah. you can see it. I'm one of those people who I like and then it's like, what's its name? Where, it's, where is it from? What's its weakness? Like, <laughs> I like all that kind of stuff. Like, you like the top, top Trump's element. Yeah. And, that, and that's where it becomes like the They're genre like Pokemon of- Pokemon cards. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it becomes like the genre of the monsters and that kind of yes. stuff. So that little bit of like, ooh, there's a safe space. I'm like- I like that because I want to know why. Like, I mean, immediately I'm like, why is it? Like, what's gonna, what's, what's the reveal gonna be as to why that is? I mean, I, I mean, the obvious implication is that it's being controlled by a shady corporate elite. No, it's it's kind of hinted at in. So, I mean, like, we're covering, we've covered spoilers anyway. So, if you yeah, this is well, the first volume, it, but if you enjoy, like, if you want to try this, like, this is just one volume we're talking about. There's a second yeah. one already out, and a third is coming out right now. So, you've got plenty more to get into if you want to keep listening. So, it hints towards the end. Uh, one of the characters, no, not even one of the characters, it just cuts to some people in a museum. And then, right. and in the, and so when, so when they're on the train, more importantly, you've got, one woman and two oh, the kids. End of the first volume, right? Yeah, the museum. But yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit before that, you've got the woman and two kids who are the last survivors of the yes. train. And this is uh, what I was going to mention before. Is it, this is why I think it was really good at ramping up the tension. Yeah. It uses the panels without dialogue to show the the they're trying to get away from Harry, and he's slowly approaching, yeah. and the inherent fear and terror of the good. Um, facial expressions of the characters get yeah, a really yes. good sense yeah, of the terror. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I mean, the art's always the, the art's mm. great throughout, isn't it? And there's a little bit of Deus Ex Machina where <laughs> he's about to reach them, and then you hear on the tannoy that they're getting to the museum. Yeah, and he stops, and it then the girl says later um, that she saw fear in his eyes, and then he turns around and goes the other way. Oh, and the museum's in the safe zone. The museum's in the safe zone, and 
At uh, the end, yeah. it cuts to some strangers looking at stuff in the museum. Yes, yes. And they're talking about like, oh, these are from like Native um, Native Americans in this area. And, yeah. you know, they've stolen all the stuff and put it in this museum. And then they just don't see the connection at all. Because then they're like, oh, did you hear Harry hit the train or whatever? There's an amulet in the museum that's the same markings as the hockey mask. Oh, I didn't clock it. Yeah. And so that for me, I'm like, law. Like, I love, let's let's go. There's something here. Let's find out what the backstory is. I didn't clock it, mate. Oh, that, so that's cool. Yeah. That is undeniably cool. I like that. It reminds me of the amulet of Helene mm. in um, Why the Last Man. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully this, well, we'll see if this pays off or not in this in a similar I mean, way I'd, or not. I mean, I almost preferred that the amulet of Helene was a red herring. Yeah, that was a, a good plot point. It was it was great. It was a banging plot point. Because um, he was like dying of botulism, wasn't he? Um, but no, that is cool. And I, I appreciate uh, like when I said that it was kind of a deus ex machina, like in the moment it was. Yeah. But then it's, it's informing later well, plot points. And so. a deus ex machina is only a deus ex machina if it comes out of nowhere and completely saves the day. Yeah. Whereas this is an informed plot point, isn't it? Yes. And so 100% I can get behind that. And do you know what? I didn't clock it, mate. Fair, didn't fair. notice it. I mean, again, I was a little bit fatigued with it by the end of the fifth issue. Like I mm. read it all in one go. I read it all in one sitting. Whereas I was still like, oh my God, law. <laughs> yeah. And, and do you know what? That is exactly the kind of thing that I would have found interesting as well. Mm. And so maybe if I'd been paying a little bit, because I can't, my interest kind of dropped towards the end of the last issue. So mm. maybe if I'd really been paying attention, I would have spotted it as well. Yeah. But that is cool. And that's like, I suppose that's where volume two comes in and where that, where the story gets a little bit richer, right? Yeah. It's, it's definitely going in that direction. It still yeah. leaves a lot. There's still a lot to come about as we'll see. Um, but talking about the speaking to the guy who's written the book and they yeah. talk about that safe zone he they say i think that the, the uh, petabone says i know what you're about to say yeah oh you didn't put that in your book surprisingly you just moved yourself into the safe zone with yeah. all your security but you didn't put that in the book and he goes gotta save something for the second book and immediately i'm like that encapsulates like and also why would i make the most expensive neighborhood in new york more expensive yes exactly. no why would i make the only safe neighborhood in new york more expensive yeah and it's like oh but even the fact that even then he's still like i might put it in the second one like if i have got if i've got nothing else then uh, yeah. i might put it in that one and he's there looking for titles for the second book which is where death train comes in i love that as well because he says he uses death train on the phone and she's like by the way don't call it death train that's really disrespectful to the survivors and he's got the list of names and it was the last one he's like i guess it's death train and it's the last one and it's the only one not crossed out and he's like i guess i won't use that one then (laughs) but that whole thing like that speaks to the uh, in the wider satirical sense it speaks to like the the interests of the elite so not necessarily the government or whatever but also, the fact that there is a booming intra- industry of media popping up around tragedy. Hmm. And uh, like that book is going to be very popular in the rest of the country. You don't have to deal with yeah, the 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I imagine they'll sell no copies in New York. Hmm. Um, but again, the, you know, that's a thriving economy, isn't it? It's, and again, it's the kind of wine and murder thing. It's the murder podcast thing hmm. of like, you know, people enjoying true crime. Yeah. And it's that, it, it kind of almost, I mean, it is, I mean, that book would have been a true crime book, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a quite a succinct critique, critique of an industry that exists. And, and I'm not going to talk shit about the true crime guys, because a lot of them make podcasts and a mm. lot of them make very well subscribed to uh, ostensibly very good podcasts. It's not something I've ever listened to. 
Um, but it is on some level an industry that piggybacks on suffering. Yeah. My it's only an industry is- that only exists because they're commentating on human suffering. Yeah. Right? My only issue with the uh, true crime stuff is I'm all well for it when it, it can give everything at the end. But when it's like, here's a true crime thing. And then the end's like, and we don't know who did it. And yeah. that's the end. I'm like, I just listened to this for ages and now nothing. Like- Do you know, there's quite a succinct, succinct task argument for the fact that the kind of hatred of true crime is just straight up misogyny. I didn't know that. Uh, I'm not surprised anything comes down to misogyny, to be um, honest. The genre of true crime is overwhelmingly more popular with women. Right. In general, just if you look at listener stats on re- readerships and stuff. And so they often think that actually it's just a way of men belittling women's interests. So I'm really sorry that I went went for true crime, guys. Well, at least I, I said I had a spe- I have a specific gripe with it, like because yeah. there's the the ones where it's like, and here's what happened, and you go, wow, that was you know it raised the mystery and then it explained it. I mean, yeah. Again, this comes back to my thing with the lore of horror monsters. I'm like, yeah, but where did it come from? And what's your favorite horror monster? Uh, well. I've been put on the spot here. I did like Jason Voorhees in the original Friday the Thirteenth, yeah. maybe because he was so iconic. Um, I, I, I guess as monsters generally, like in terms of a franchise, I'm really a big fan of the Evil Dead series, and they have what's called the Deadites. Yes, and they're great because they're kind of a mix of zombies and possession. And specifically, what it is is the Evil Dead series. What's great about it is it's very over the top tropic horror. But it's also got this splash of like dark comedy and slapstick in them. Yeah. And the Deadites, what they do is they kind of, they're demons who possess people and kind of turn them to zombies. But their main goal is more to torment and torture other people around them. Do you know much about um, early, I think it's Caribbean? Um, the, the, the early Caribbean folkloric you know, like monster stories that zombies come from. Very loosely. It wasn't zombies. It was in modern media. It was attributed to voodoo, which isn't the real case at all, is it? Well, it kind of is. Yeah. And right. voodoo is, has strong links to African and Afro-Caribbean cultures. Right. Um, and so, yeah, they, the, that, that whole thing with like possession and witchcraft and stuff mm. um, is really strongly linked with that. And you'd probably find some of it quite interesting if that's something you're into. Well, what's interesting about Evil Dead is the reason they did what they did was because the people who made it, especially director Sam Raimi and the star Bruce Campbell, they just want to make a film. Yeah. Like they were just film buffs. They were like, we can make a horror film because we know a bunch of people who can make these prosthetics and we just make a fun, like very tropey cabin in the woods. Like they, yeah. they really nailed down that trope as like yeah. a thing. And then it did really successful and they were like i guess we'll make more and to be fair you can tell they they care about it but it was interesting that when they first made it they was like let's just make a film actually same with friday the 13th that one was made because the the person the person who made it they want they needed funding to make a different film so they were like all right let's make a by the numbers horror film yeah and then let's just make that and then get that out and then that'll raise money we can make this other film right did it work well I think they made the other film because Friday the 13th was really popular. As a, it was as a incredibly horror, successful. To wasn't the point it? where no one remembers what the other film was, but everyone knows Friday the 13th. I remember the first time I watched Friday the 13th, it shat me up because I watched mm. it in bed on my little CRT TV. Right. In the, which was like on a wall in the corner of my bedroom at like one o'clock in the morning on Halloween mm. when I should have been in bed and I had it on really quiet and I watched it and it fucking terrified me. Was it the last scene? Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, the whole thing is pretty scary for a kid as well. 
So I, I really like Chupacabra. Mm. Do you know what's interesting about Chupacabra? Uh, I, all I know is that it's Mexican. Mexican. Yeah. And then like, you know, Southern States of America, because that's technically should be Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Chupacabra <laughs> does not acknowledge international <laughs> borders. Apparently a lot of Mexicans don't either. Um, <laughs> if, if you listen to right wing pundits, yeah. <laughs> we should probably take that bit out. Nah, it's that's fu- the funniest thing I've said all episode. Nah, the, the joke is if you if you listen to right wing media in America, apparently there's a, a, a waves of them coming over the wall like bloody... Um, what's the zombie film um oh it's the one with brad pitt and i can't remember it's like <sighs> there's a zombie film with brad pitt yeah i can't remember mean day of the dead no no it's not day of the dead dawn so, of the dead no it's way way after those okay um someone's screaming at the podcast player right now because i can't remember what it is and i can't be asked <laughs> to look it up but the in that film the, there's so many zombies that they're yeah. hitting these giant walls and they're just like building on top of each other oh, and like spilling yeah. over like a na- like a tsunami of zombies and that's, that's why rad. i think right-wing pundits in america think of mexicans <laughs> yeah so chupacabra what's really interesting is that that myth kind of evolved in the late 20th century mm-hmm and we think of it as being this age-old, like, old Mexican folkloric thing. But actually, it's incredibly recent. Really? Yeah, and I found that really interesting. Like, it doesn't it doesn't enter the popular conscious in a really meaningful way until, like, the 80s or the 90s. Um, I think a lot of stuff like that is a lot of cultures have their own version of this. Yes. I think they all looked at America's uh, Bigfoot and were like, yeah, let's make our own version. Like, we, <laughs> we want one of those. We're going to have an off-brand Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> Chupacabra's Pepsi to Bigfoot's cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> Prefer Pepsi, man. Yeah. Same, same. They've all got aspartame in. Yeah, oh, well, God. Yeah, let's not, <laughs> let's not have that conversation again. I tell towards this, the ending of the comic is when some yeah. of the big panel. Back to the comic. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> some of the big panels, um, yes. uh, big splash panels of... For one thing, the character Gabriella, who is splash panels. Yeah, never like, heard it called that before. Yeah, I th- I've heard that term, and I, I probably used it incorrectly, but it's, it's the idea of like a big splash of color and stuff on the page. I like that, like yeah. a splash panel, because we yeah. we talk about that a lot, don't we? And now mm. now I have a verbiage for it that I'm just going to steal. We, we from pick you. these up as we go along, like house style and lettera yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, God, we've learned so much about comics from doing this. One would argue that we probably should have known more before we started, but hey, uh, well, I know. But it's been. Uh, do you know what? When you the think audience about has learned it, along with us. Yeah, we've all we. The real, the real gift was the friends we made along the way. The inside comic book in, uh, knowledge and lore that we learn along the way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the, sorry, there's the, big splash panels of Gabriella. Yeah, well, one of them was Gabriella, who I thought they did a good job of making her like a I hope she survives kind of character. Yes. And then it, it did a kind of the, this comic book's version of the jump scare. And it yeah. was where you kind of turn the page, even though we're digitally, but you turn the page and it's the the harry behind her and the knife has gone straight through her torso and yeah. it's all suddenly red everywhere yeah. and everything so i thought that was good and then also another one later was when green sets fire to harry it becomes this big yeah. bright yellow and orange color and again because of the watercolor aspect it kind of blends it this is where the lines go a bit like and when right she, out the window did you clock that that was what was going to happen when she took the flask i so it's hard to gauge because i don't know i can't remember if i did not on my first read through and obviously i knew it right, was going to happen in my second yeah, so yeah. so i i don't know if i did or not so 100 percent as soon as soon as soon as she took that flask i was like she's gonna try and burn him with that whiskey mm. it did good a good tropic foreshadowing of um 
He's like, what's the one thing Harry does? Like, well, fire, because one time he was on fire and he didn't like it. And that's like, well, now we know what they're going to do. Yeah. But then you would expect, like, these people, these characters, the main characters, are meant to be, well, at least one of them is a Harry expert, essentially. They're meant and to be it, at least competent. Yeah. And the other one's been working on the case for so long. Yeah. So they have this information. So naturally, they'd be like, right, let's use that as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah 100%. And you know what? Like, it's storytelling. That's what happens, isn't it? Like, you, you know, you acquire a tool, you use it to solve a problem. Mm. Harry is a problem. Fire is a tool. I don't know that whiskey in the mouth would burn like that. I think it depends on the whiskey. Like, maybe some have, are more flammable than others. You, I think you need over 80% proof alcohol right. to burn. Most, like, American bourbon whiskey, at least, is like 40%. So it's 80 proof, which is our 40%. Yeah, you need you need pretty strong alcohol, basically. Yeah, proof is double uh, double our European percent percentages. I think. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you need you need really strong booze. Like mm. the implication there is that Pettibone is basically just drinking paint thinners. Yeah, in a very tropic, uh, PTSD cop kind of. Because you can get like a little bit of fire to sit on top of some brandy, mm. but if you want alcohol that burns like explosively. You need a lot of alcohol in that liquid. Well, also it's the spray function as well, isn't it? You, you can't yeah, just you can't maybe. just spit a mouthful of water at a flame. It works. You're like it's the spray aspect that makes it like it's got to be fine enough, kind of mist almost, yeah. for the fire to catch between the droplets. You need and... the perfect spit take. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> you need a but from a wrestling nerd, you need a Triple H entrance spit take. All right, okay, yeah. Any wrestling nerds, that one was for you. Hey. I've always wanted to do a spit take. It's fun. It's fun. Have you done one? I think I did. I think I was like drinking with people outside once. We were like, just uh, you know, when you got cheap alcohol and some the, someone brings up and you do the right, tell me something shocking. It's like, by the way, I'm pregnant. You go. Pfft. So you, you've done a spit. I've yeah. never done a spit take. Well, next time we're out, if we're if we're <laughs> less reputable venue with cheap beer, then we'll do that. Okay. And then someone oh. be like, get outside if you're gonna spit everywhere. <laughs> just at the bar, spitting at each other like. <laughs> Why? Why is this bad? What? Spraying the bar down with carling. <laughs> For those who don't know, that's one of the cheap beers. It's, it's a it's a premium lager, I think. I mean, just because it says premium on the can. No, it's yeah. not. It's not good. Don't drink carling. <laughs> if you heard it here first, kids, drink eighty proof whiskey, but don't drink carling. <laughs> well, if you're gonna do a flamethrower spit take, yes, get mm. very very strong scotch. Oh, uh, towards the end, I can't remember which parts for me when the last issue of this volume or the next in the volume two though right. do you remember what the last kind of issue like what happened in that because i remember vaguely i, I don't want to say anything the museum thing that we talked about that was the one thing yeah did did you see green kind of um getting like a bit of public ridicule for yes. taking the blame yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so i thought that was a good thing of like putting the characters to a bit more to, like what's the word like yeah, do you know, Ooh, I forgot tri- about that. Trial by fire kind of stuff. And again, that really speaks to the court of public opinion that we have now. Yes. And the, the we behind the scenes obviously says to like, she is taking the blame for the mayor's poor decisions yeah. in response, uh, in uh, the deal was that she stays on the task force, essentially. Yeah. And you see people being like, why did you let those people die? And Green just has to be like, I thought I was doing what was best and sorry. Yeah, yeah, God. And she handles it really well, doesn't she? Hmm. I think that speaks a lot to her character. And I think, again, it's stuff like that which made me appreciate the characters. Like, again, not in a... 
they're written really complex and you know but just enough of like a god they've been through a lot like i hope they make it like yeah. that kind of level and especially now green's going through that kind of stuff as well but yeah i thought it was a nice little end to the the uh, the bleak ending of this volume yeah. and especially again you have that right-wing pundit again who is basically saying like they absolutely ruined this and you know they're making a mockery of this and i won't stand for it and we need to vote them out and then as soon as the cameras rolls off he's just like right i'm getting the fuck out of here before harry might turn up and then homeless guy's like hey can you spare some change like get the fuck away from me yeah and then the homeless guy gets killed and that's by harry and that i think was last a, a last little it is the working class and poor who are suffering most affected yeah suffering the decisions made by the upper class yeah absolutely and little down on it but i think if you have any interest in this kind of in well especially in this first volume i would implore you to keep reading because i think it does a lot of interesting stuff going forward yeah and a bit more of the same as well like it doesn't like completely change tone or anything it continues what it was doing but it's worth continuing in my opinion i can only give it like a half-hearted recommendation like i enjoyed it for what it was I don't know that if we weren't going to record and talk about it here, that mm. I would bother with the second volume. That's fair. And- um, but it wasn't bad. Mm. It just wasn't, it just didn't, it, it, just, it didn't really get me going like it got you going. Would you say is it wasn't for you? Like what it was trying yeah, to do? Yeah, and, and, and again, it wasn't bad. Like there were, there are aspects of it that I really enjoyed. It's just that overall I found it all a little bit average. <laughs> That's fair. I think my main takeaway was I enjoyed the like I said before the the mixing of the genres yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the satirical writing and everything and I think this is definitely one of those if you're into X you're like Y kind of things. Yeah. So that was our first big spooky horror of the of the month of October. Yeah, or, so or, or as we're calling it Scary spooky. October. It's spooky season. Spooky season. Spooky season. We have season of spooks. We haven't nailed down a name yet, but we're gonna just keep it's making spooky season. I've told you the old spooktober. Now that's probably taken. Uh, well, because I wanted to do October exclusively be Star Trek stuff and call it Spocktober, and that is a good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if somebody else from another podcast does that now, we'll have a record of like, no, Jamie thought this up. That's- and we are suing you for all your revenue. Absolutely. We'll, we'll take that in a PayPal transfer. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening. I hope you've had a wonderful time. As a, Ryan, a scary time. I hope you've had a spooky time. Mm. As Ryan has mentioned, this is the first in our spooky season for October. So if you'd like more horror-related contact, please do come back next week. You want to tell us why Jamie's wrong, um, you can go to comicliterate.gmail.com. Watch the shorts on YouTube, watch the shorts on TikTok, listen to the podcast, do the things, leave a review. And especially if you have any recommendations for scary comics. Because we're fucking shit out. Well, the, <laughs> I've found some, but they they are few and further in between. So if there's any particular spooky comics you want to hear us talk about, comicliterate.gmail.com. I Thank you, you so I, much. I'll tell you is the biggest issue is with spooky comics or any kind of like yeah. smaller genre of comics. It's the, I'm trying to take us out. I know, right? I know. But I'm just saying, <laughs> they are there, but it's knowing which ones are good before yeah, we get yeah, into yeah, them. Absolutely. And, and as, as we've established, this is not quite your wheelhouse, so I don't no. want to present you with a bad one. Like a month's worth yeah. of it. Exactly. <laughs> Although we are doing one particularly bad one. But that's going to add to the horror, so that'll be fun. Thank you and good night. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Every every week for the yeah. rest of the <laughs>